Welcome to In 20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, skepticism, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Warning. This episode has foul language, chemical abuse, and violence. Practically everyone has seen the video. Recorded through an amateur telescope on Earth, it shows the cloud trail following the moon. For years, 30 cannons on the moon have shot dust into space, creating a cloud trail. Though it can't be seen by the naked eye on Earth, the cloud trail reduces the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth. As the video plays, the cloud trail appears to break off from the moon. The moon appears to leave the trail behind as the two grow further apart. Lots of amateur astronomers get footage of the trail breaking off. Some take high-res photos. Some shoot videos that include them saying things like, it just happened, and I can't believe this is happening. Some footage taken from space gets a lot of views, but the one video taken from Earth gets viewed the most. People change the audio and repost it. One post shows the cloud breaking off while a femme says, Dr. Faust, what'll happen if the moon cannons stop? A man's voice says, it won't be good. The femme says, but the weather has been improving each year. The man says, what we want to avoid is a point of no return. We're still near a tipping point where a cascade effect could completely change the climate. In another post, a femme adds commentary. She cries, I'm so scared. Will we be here next year? In another, a teen boy says, I feel helpless. If this were a burning building, I could try to break out. But with this, there's no breaking out. Nestled in the foothills, the college town of Springfield is surrounded by thick forest. With a population under 4,000, it may seem rural. But Jeevan University of Arts and Sciences near the town center draws students from around the nation the town is known for its progressive values that contrast with the conservative views found in the rest of the state. The town square, framed by local shops, pea patch grow houses, a repair-all library and cozy cafes, buzzes with activity. Colorful murals depict scenes of inclusivity and acceptance. Residents display rainbow flags and social justice slogans in their windows. One of the first open-source fab-all buildings operates out of the old auction house, Rain catchment tanks of all shapes and sizes fit in wherever there's room. Giantess bots pick up material from recycle cubes on corners. Triple-height wind turbines and the Giantess Production Center loom in the sky just outside the town. Students bike on tree-lined streets. Locals mingle at community centers or one of the many co-ops. A small theater hosts a new international or indie film each week, while the Central Pub holds open mic night every Wednesday. The annual Pride Festival draws visitors from near and far, and a farmer's market showcases a vibrant array of organic produce, handmade crafts, and hume-made goods. Then the schools are put on pause. The university, trade school, high school, middle school, and elementary suspend all classes. Doors are chained and locked. Cop bots block entrances and herd concerned citizens off the properties. Panicked groups gather on the streets. Arguments break out as parents blame teachers and teachers, themselves just as bewildered, try to reassure people. Buses that drop off children depart, and confused kids must figure out how to get home. In the following weeks, 
The single runway airport draws crowds as people followed by chest and luggage bots board small autonoplanes. Large Helium-3 airships come to the town for the first time to ferry people away. An unusual stillness falls over the town. In the town center, cafes and shops look deserted. Anxious owners watch from shadows within. Teenagers roam the streets with unspent energy. The fraction of co-op members who didn't leave huddle together on edge with the specter of the unknown hanging in the air. Weeds and tall grass spring up in the university football field. When the remaining 400 residents hear the news that the Moon Cannon Project has shut down, some hide in their homes while others attend vigils with expressions of dread. People collapse into tears or stare wordlessly. Families draw together. Children ask their parents what's wrong. Life plans drastically change. Some embark on personal journeys, seeking closure or redemption. Some lament missed love and dreams that'll go unfulfilled. A few cling to irrational hope, spouting conspiracies or joining religions. Affairs go public. Families break apart. People's behavior becomes unrecognizable overnight. A man opens his stable and sets five prize racehorses free. Someone sets garages on fire and no one knows who it is. A prude sells sex acts in an alley. A pacifist turns the street in front of his house into his gun range. Drug dealers move into town. New bars open, one in a giant tent. In the community hall, support groups cancel meetings while a new group called End Days Outreach grows in number. Mariah and Kristen were introduced in episode 46. Both in their early 40s, they climb out of the 20-passenger autonomous plane and walk across the sun-baked landing field. The humid air is hard to breathe. A luggage cart passes them, its rotating light shining yellow. The terminal, the size of a school gym, is empty if you don't count the robots. A four-face clock with a face for north, south, east, and west hangs from the center of the ceiling. Mariah and Kristen walk to the conveyor where their luggage rides to a stop. Kristen's mirrored glasses hide her eyes, but her cheeks are blotchy from wiping away tears. She says, I'm still making future plans. I wanted to write a children's book about permaculture. Luggage. Follow us. Legs fold out on the sides of their luggage. The cases stand and step off the conveyor. Mariah says, You still can. Kristen says, you don't think we should go out with a bang, spend all our savings while money still means something. She looks inside the cat case and says, Dracula, how are you? Her monkey cat Chimera yowls. Its head has whiskers and pointy ears, but it has tiny hands instead of paws, and its thick, long tail curls in a loop. Kristen shakes her head at it and says, Oh, poor kitty, don't worry, we're taking you to a nice place. She picks up the cat case and they head for the front doors. As they take an autocab through the streets shaded by billowing trees, Kristen says, My first kiss was on that corner. Two blocks go by. She says, That's where Mickey Noslato burned his hand with a firecracker. I told you that story, right? It's so empty here. There are usually people walking around. Mariah frowns. How much time do they have left? She should say something positive. She says, Do people here have your accent? Kristen laughs and says, I think so, but you know it's my mom who has an accent in my family. My dad doesn't have one. She makes a sharp choking noise and covers her mouth. After she recovers, she says, What'll happen to all these trees? I wish we had a way of knowing. 
they reach Kristen's parents' home, step up on the front porch, and Kristen turns the antique ringer. It makes a mechanical clacking sound. Kristen says, Don't look, but that's the house where Pervy Mark lived. Oh, bugger. I hope he isn't still living there. I'd hate to spend the end days with him nearby. He's the one who hit a cam in the girl's locker. That's why he got kicked out of school. Mariah takes a slow, deep breath and stretches her neck by bending her head down. She glances to the side yard where a Luton bot trims bushes. A thump, thump, thump echoes inside the house. Kristen says, Let's not bring up the moon, okay? It's just... What's the point, right? Mariah nods with a hint of a frown. The door opens and an old man greets them with a welcoming smile. He says, Bumblebee. He doesn't wear AR glasses and his eyes never land on the femmes. Intricate patterns of wrinkles cover his face. His shirt is missing two buttons. Kristen reaches over his walker and hugs him. Daddy. He looks up in the general direction of Mariah and says, Hi, Mariah, taking care of our bumblebee. Mariah says, Oh, yes, I'm doing my best. Inside Brian, Kristen's dad, points as he says, You can take the room down the hall. Sorry, you can't have your old room. It's become a storage space. He laughs. The luggage follows Mariah. Actual books on shelves collect dust. The fireplace has been replaced with a single rider elevator. Kristen says, Can I see Mom? Brian says, Oh, sure, yes, yes, let's go say hi. A Rexbot watches Brian. With canine proportions, it moves like a dog until it stands on its hind legs. Its limbs lengthen, changing to hume proportions. And with hume-like movement, it walks to the front door and shuts it. Then it changes back into a dog bot. Meanwhile, a Luton bot stands aside in the hall so Mariah can pass. Kristen follows Brian. Dad, how many robots do you have? He says, Oh, we have three Lutons and I just got that Rex bot so I can go on walks. It's my seeing eye dog. Did you know that? I can go on walks again. She whispers, That's great. They enter a dark room where a ceiling fan slowly spins. Her mother lies on a bed in the center of the room. A Luton bot massages her leg to counteract poor circulation and stiffness. Nancy, Kristen's mom, looks up and says, Kristen, is that you? Her eyelids flutter over watery eyes. Kristen rushes to the bedside and says, Mom, how are you? She takes off her glasses and wipes her eyes. Oh, Mom, it's so nice to see you. I know you don't enjoy talking on the phone, but I'm here now. We can catch up. In her 90s, Nancy looks confused. Her eyebrows quiver. Tubes and wires hang between her and a machine on the bedside table. She says, Kristen, is that you? Kristen lightly pats Nancy's arm. She says, Yes, I'm here. How have you been? It's so nice to see you. Nancy's eyes roll around before settling back on Kristen. She blinks so slowly that it looks like she shuts her eyes for several seconds before opening them again. It takes a few more seconds for her eyes to focus on Kristen. Kristen says, I have someone here I'd like you to meet. I brought your favorite marmalade chocolates. Nancy says, Kristen, is that you? That night, Mariah and Kristen wake to explosive rattling sounds, metal clapping so rapidly it sounds like automatic gunfire moving up and down the streets. Dracula jumps off the bed and climbs up a floor lamp. Kristen sits up. Mariah falls out of bed and lifts the bottom blind to peer out the window. Outside, five vehicles speed past, their headlights dancing across the houses. The windows shake. 
Kristen says, What is it? Mariah says, Assistant, what's the loud sounds? Assistant says, Similar sounds in your area are described as jeeps driven by members of the Tucker Group. Though the vehicles are electric, devices on the wheels produce the sounds. Kristen gets on the floor with Mariah. She says, I'm scared. What's happening? Mariah says, It's cars. They drive so crazy, they must be driving them in manual mode. Kristen says, Holy shit. She hugs Mariah and Mariah can feel her trembling. They hear the cars drive all over the town, racing through the streets. Kristen says, Should we call the cops? Mariah says, I don't think so. Carl appears standing in the public square in a game called Make It to Heaven, which features an idyllic American town reminiscent of the 1950s. He made his avatar in his 40s, and it hasn't aged even though he's aged into his 50s. To make his avatar, he put on AR glasses and stood in front of a mirror. AI made a 3D model and improved it. His stout physique has a nobler stature. The whites of his avatar's eyes will never look murky no matter how much he drinks the night before. Its beach boy haircut will always look air-tussled. Sweat never stains its pressed button down, and its tie hangs down the center of its chest. Even though in real life, Carl's ties always drift to the side. As he stands in the grassy lot and watches a femme pushing a four-wheel baby carriage, his expression grows deader than a lifeless body. It isn't a mistake of simulation. His avatar copies his RL expression accurately. Out of that dead expression, his gaze watches like a rifle scope. The prophet appears on the other side of the field and strides toward Carl. The prophet's avatar depicts a man in his late 20s, tall and muscular, wearing designer jeans, a turtleneck, and pointy leather shoes without socks. The man's clean-shaven head shines and his beard is trimmed to perfection. Carl decides not to laugh. This guy is a prophet. No, the prophet? Someone once told Carl that the prophet used to sell a course on how to be a pickup artist. But as the prophet gets closer and Carl can make out his face, fuck, those are some weird fucking eyes. He wants to say they're circled by wrinkles, but no, they're not. The eyes are completely open, not with fear, but with total willingness. They look like they're about to cry and laugh at the same time. Usually, Carl doesn't make eye contact with anyone, not unless he's about to bend someone to his will or destroy them. Now, he can't look away. The prophet says, Carl Swartz, good to finally meet you. The prophet leans in real close, and those eyes seem to open wider to take Carl in, without judgment. The experience is intimate yet unobtrusive, and even for someone as homophobic as Carl, unalarming. Carl says, You really do miracles? The prophet's gaze relents. He straightens up and says, Yes, ever since I was ten. It took me a while to believe it myself. He says this without the tiniest hint of doubt. Carl says, Yeah, I've seen videos when that wedding couple didn't have food for their reception you told everyone to leave. And when they came back in, there was a table full of food. The prophet's light grin remains steady with absolute confidence. He says, Yes, because people need hope. Do they not? Carl says, Oh yeah, you're right. People need hope. The prophet says, I'm the one who comes before his return. He told me he'll meet me here on earth in my lifetime. A chill runs down Carl's spine. He says, You can tell me my future. With no hesitation, the prophet says, The ghost of a lost love is trying to find you at this moment. With her knowing or without her knowing, she brings Satan with her. But Jesus will snatch you up at your greatest moment of fear. 
the prophet completely believes what he says. An uncomfortable feeling turns in Carl's gut, and he's known to react violently to ticklish feelings. He says, wow, well, thank you for that. The prophet says, brother, let's get to business. You've done good work in Corville. My ministers say most of the infidels have moved. Carl says, thank you. The prophet says, we need some of your Tucker group to move to Springfield and do the same thing. And I have a job offer as well. The church has dissolved all police funding, so Springfield is in need of some law and order. We need you to be the police. Carl rears his head to the side. This information is too unexpected. He says, wait, put people in jail? The prophet shakes his head and stares earnestly. Just do as you see fit. I leave it to you. The prophet smiles with a hint of slyness. He nods slowly and Carl also begins to nod slowly. The prophet says, so I can count on you. Carl says, of course, and I'll be paid for this. The prophet says, yes, use the same account we gave you for Corville. I've got to go. He looks up and moves his arms, air swiping. Carl calls after him, America strong. The prophet nods and says, yes, one thing at a time. He disappears. Carl comes out of VR sitting on the largest couch he's ever seen in his life in the only mansion in Corville. Of the three enormous panes of Neko glass that stand three stories high, two are shattered, and a warm breeze blows into the house. Unnatural-looking vomit bakes in the sunlight on a real bear rug that includes a bear head. A target is spray-painted on the wall over the fireplace and bullet holes pockmark the wall. It feels like glue is in Carl's mouth. It feels like someone's sitting on his chest. He groans as he stands and goes in search of something that'll take the aches and pains away. Mariah and Kristen walk through the college grounds. Weeds grow in patches. Litter dances in swooping circles in a court next to one of the buildings. Graffiti covers some of the walls. A robot stands appearing to look out one of the windows, but chances are, its batteries died. A lean, wild chicken runs across their path. Mariah carries a wide sunbrella and they both walk under it. Kristen says, I wish you could have met my mom when she was more with it. She never forgot any of my friends' names. Mariah says, I'd rather be in her shoes. Kristen gasps. Mariah says, No, what I meant is, she's lived her entire life. That's a good thing. I wonder if we will. Kristen says, It's okay. They leave the campus and turn down the road. Five people stand in a group in the center of the road in front of the large barn-like building that is the co-op. Kristen says, That's weird. What are they standing around? Mariah shakes her head. Kristen says, What's that smeared on the ground? Do you see that? As they get closer, a femme turns and spots them. She calls out, You might not want to see this. Her forehead is creased. Mariah and Kristen don't slow. It's a body on the ground. By the co-op entrance, a femme holds five children back. As Mariah and Kristen come up to the group on the road, Kristen cries out, covers her face, and buries it against Mariah's shoulder. The others look mournfully at Maria. The body on the road is the remains of a young white femme, clothes torn, covered in deep abrasions and caked in dust. Glistening skin peels away from her cheekbone. Her arms stretch out above her head, and her wrists are bound with a rope. Letters are spray-painted over the body in fluorescent orange. Mariah remembers the night a police femme at the door told her and her babysitter that her parents didn't survive a car crash. 
she feels that same sensation like she's falling out of the world. A man wearing a railroad cap says, She was dragged. The spray paint says Zinner. Kristen wipes tears from her eyes, pushes off from Mariah and stumbles back from the scene. Mariah says, Who was she? A femme wearing an apron says, We think she was a femme who begged outside the old bank. She was hard to talk to. People say she was schizophrenic. Mariah feels a slow anger coming on. She says, Where are the police? A redhead man says, They don't answer. Mariah says, Isn't this the sort of thing the KKK did? Apron-wearing femme says, Not to white people. A teen runs from the co-op holding out a tarp. The others move as he throws it over the body. Railroad Cap says to Mariah, You may want to tone down your manly look. Apron holds out a cautious hand and says, Is. Mariah squints an eye at him and says, I'm not trying to look like anything. This is how I look after a sponge bath when I put on pants and a t-shirt. A femme clears her throat. He says, It's just that... Mariah says, I'm not trying to pass as a man. I have to try harder to pass as a femme. Apron says, We're on your side. It's just we're in the middle of a Christian nationalist state. Kristen takes Mariah's arm and pulls her away. The man says, We're all scared. The group is nodding, bowing their heads and looking down. Kristen cries as she pulls Mariah down the road. She says, Let's go. Let's just go. Walking back the way they came, Mariah says, I don't know if I can stay in this town. As they near the house, Kristen's tears dry only for new tears to wet her face again. She says, We can't move my mom. She's fragile. Mariah's face burns. With a raspy whisper, she says, There's a big chance we may only have one more year. Is this where you want to spend it? Kristen's not used to getting angry. She looks about, flustered, and says, You do what you need to do. I need to take care of my mother. Mariah takes a deep breath and then another. She says, Yes, darling, I understand. I'm with you to the end. Kristen laughs with a whimper. Mariah says, If you let me. At night, a gang of loud jeeps drive through the streets, chasing after strays, tearing through yards and running over small fences. Outside the city, a sky crane flies, scanning continually. When other skycraft are too far away to capture meaningful video footage, the crane slows to a hover and lowers its cargo container thread-thin cables. The container breaks through branches and crushes bushes before it touches down. The door rolls up and Beth, 20 years old now, steps out, followed by a survival pod. Her face is pretty with pale skin and black hair, but the features of her face can take on a fierce, even monstrous aspect with certain expressions. The pod, with the dimensions of a refrigerator on its side, walks on four robot legs. She and the pod walk through the woods as the cargo container lifts and the sky crane flies away. So far to Beth's knowledge, no cams have captured her. AI cams and sensors can record footage that may come back to haunt her. That's why she's taken a private crane and landed so far outside of town. Her glasses have sonic, infrared smell, and radio vision. Combined senses vision interpreted by AI can render the night as visible as day and can draw her attention to targets and dangers. Birds and rodents show up brightly, especially when the breeze brings their scents her way. AI can use thermal and sound patterns to pinpoint their locations. 
The AI doesn't just hear a sound, it hears all the echoes a sound makes and can use that information to generate 3D mapping. She sees a partly transparent landscape and can see behind things. All of this without needing to bring a flashlight. Because the Survive All pod isn't designed for stealth, it makes noise climbing through the greenery, and Beth watches most of the animals freeze or slink away. An owl silently flies overhead. Two deer bound away, and a few minutes later she nears a family of raccoons that edge away under the cover of bushes. An AR tag that reads Springfield shows the direction of her destination. She continues at a vigorous pace, wanting to find a good spot before sunrise. Birds fly past, all heading in the same direction. They light up with colors indicating sound. Wait, those aren't birds. They're bats, and the colors show the sounds they make to echolocate. Springfield is to her right, but if she veers left, maybe she can see where the bats go. Sure enough, after 20 minutes of veering off the path, she comes to an opening in a rock cliff that the bats fly into. Several concrete foundations show through piles of leaves. They must have been the floors of large buildings at one time. Rusted industrial equipment sticks out from the forest. The largest is a huge tank. Great rusted rings lie in piles. Pipes, wheels, and cables rust in the dirt. Rust means older than the 30s. People hardly use metal anymore and new things don't rust. She looks at a giant metal container and she says, What's that? Assistant says, That's a smelter used to extract metal from rock. Ahead, great piles of waste gravel lean against the cliff. At one time, there must have been a road here, but she can't detect where it was. The pod finds some standing water, drops a hose, and sucks water into one of its tanks. When she stands next to the mine opening, bats fly so close she can hear their wings and feel turbulence. She says, Any indication of other people in this area? Assistant says, None that I can see. I don't detect any tracks, litter, hume smells, or moved items that might indicate hume meddling. She says, Remember this location. Assistant says, What should I name it? She says, The mine. A tag appears in the middle of the entrance. Continuing towards Springfield in 40 minutes, she gets in sight of an abandoned stone building she has aerial photos of. It rests in a field of vines half a kilometer outside of town. The pod stops as she turns around and steps behind it. She opens the pod door in the back. The pod is stuffed with equipment. She pulls a loaded pack out, sets it down, and digs out the mini blimp drone. Shaped like a squashed beach ball, the drone floats as soon as she switches it on. Its jets are no louder than a laptop fan. An AR stream of what it sees appears in her upper field of view. She releases it and steers it with her hands down to the stone building. The drone has combined sense vision just like her glasses. It flies through the back doorway that's missing a doorframe and a door. Mice shine red as they scurry across the floor and disappear behind the walls. Plants grow over caved-in kitchen cabinets. Dirt covers the floor. The kitchen leads to the living room where the ceiling collapsed, revealing roof joists. Broken ceiling pieces cover everything. A bedroom and a bathroom branch off from the living room. Half the glass panes in the windows are broken. Assistant says, I'm not picking up any trace of people in here. I found fox and cat tracks. The fox tracks are the most recent. Beth walks to the house. Fortunately, she wears Brazo-coated pants and boots because thorn vines grow a meter high all around the house. Brazo is one of the new wonder materials discovered with the help of AI. It's bullet-resistant, so thorns break their points on it. 
Her hand gets too close to a vine and the razor-sharp thorns make three slashes in her skin. Drops of blood grow outside the cuts and fall. She steps over the vines to pass through the doorway. The pod enters behind her. It just barely fits. She says, Park the pod in the bedroom. The pod must do some maneuvering to angle its way into the room and rest itself on the floor. The big window in the living room overlooks Springfield downhill. Back outside, she circles the house and drives eight campsite alarm posts into the ground. Their sensors will alert her to movement sound and radio signals. They scan the skies and can spot drone traffic, even small drones and drones flying at great heights. Inside again, she unpacks the pod in the dark, setting out a lot of her equipment in the living room. She has a lamp but sees just as well in total darkness. She takes off her cooling jacket and plugs it into the outlet on the outside of the pod. The pod has a century battery. It's a sulfur microbial fuel cell which will produce constant power for longer than she'll be alive. It can power the pod and two electric vehicles and still have enough power to purify water and make her food. It was expensive, certainly overkill. She could have brought solar panels, but setting out solar panels risks getting spotted by drones or a hunter passing through. Finding the med bag, she sprays the cuts on her hand. The spray disinfects, covers the cuts with microbes designed to aid in tissue repair, and dries to a film that keeps filth away from the cuts. The film also allows the skin to breathe and release sweat. She says, turn off the blimp drone. The drone drifts to the ground and shuts off. She plugs that in and plugs in her mechanical stomach so it can start making her food. She sets up her humidity condenser. Its six panels unfold. It stands up straight on small support legs. Inside the panels, cold surfaces pull moisture from the air to make drinkable water. When the pod is mostly empty of equipment, she climbs in and shuts the door. The cool, purified air soothes her. The puffer blanket expands to a cushion. She unwraps and eats leftover pizza and half a chocolate milk from earlier, the last time she may eat fast food in a while. Through AR, she goes online. Her connection is painfully slow, but that's because she's using Medusa. As she uses it, Medusa will infect peripheral devices in Springfield and turn them into shadow servers. In a few days, her connection should be as fast as Brethren Link or whatever the name of the local internet provider is. Watching a prepper video makes her drowsy. Before she shuts her eyes, she locks the door on her pod. Outside, the first hints of blue light up the sky. She wakes up at 3 p.m. and cleans up in the light of day, shoveling plaster, dirt, and glass off the floors and moving the largest pieces of rotted furniture into the bathroom. She may be imagining it, but the air in the house feels drier, which could mean the atmospheric water harvester is working. Sure enough, it's produced half a liter of water. She unscrews the collection bottle, drinks from it a couple of times, and pours the reset into her mechanical stomach. Then she reattaches the bottle. Thorn vines grow into the house through the windows. She clips away at this, putting small pieces into a collapsible basket. When she feeds the plants into the mechanical stomach, it makes a whirring sound as it shreds and grinds. The stomach has produced two bars so far. She pulls one out of the delivery bin and tries a bite. It tastes a little too sweet for her liking. She says, make my meal bars taste less sweet. Assistant says, I'll make that adjustment for the next batch. It should take effect 24 hours from now. The bar does have a distinct bacon, biscuit, and syrup flavor. The machine is supposed to vary the flavor with each batch. She'll see about that. Time to get online. She returns to the pod and switches on VR mode. 
Live 3D Streets isn't working in this state, so she says, Make a map of all the cams I can access in Springfield. A map appears with hundreds of points. Assistant says, Here you go. I can scan for user-restricted cams and attempt to gain access to them if you like. She says, Yes, do that. Especially look for sensors that have this building in its range. Rumor has it that this state hasn't kept up with AI surveillance, but when she doesn't know, it's safer to act like they have the latest AI watchers. Clicking on points on the map, she finds one cam that has this building showing in its upper left corner. It's a cam that looks across someone's backyard, and this building is a little smudge in the woods outside the city. It's probably safer just to leave it as is. She goes to TurnTube and finds the videos posted by Benny Snug, a.k.a. Crack. The videos show a man in his 40s with bulldog cheeks, a long beard with lots of thin spots, and wearing a clownish amount of white nationalist patches and insignia. In the videos, he rambles. She mutes it as soon as the video starts. That's him for sure. She recognizes him, though she was only 12 when she saw him in person. Her face turns sinister. Her eyebrows stand out and her sneer would fit in a horror film. She says, Search cams in Stringfield for shots of the man in this video. Assistant says, The man's latest video is filmed outside a house on Miller Street in Springfield. I have live footage of him now. She says, Show it to me. A live cam shows him sitting at the counter of a rundown bar. She says, Start tracking him 24-7. By night, she's learned a lot. Assistant jumps cams to follow Crack and his gang as they drive their jeeps through the town. She can hear the jeeps all the way out at her hideout as she sees them on cams. The jeeps spin out and race each other, knocking street signs down, leaving skid marks in the roads, and plowing through gardens. Beth remembers a phrase her father used to use, drunken driving. She says, I want to learn to drive. With the help of assistant, she finds a driving game with controls that match real life. She says, keep tabs on crack. Then she practices driving in an open-world car game for several hours until she falls asleep. The next day, she wakes up and plays the car game. She drives at top speeds in roadsters, running red lights and narrowly missing collisions as three cop cars pursue her. Assistant says, Kitchen is calling. Still playing the game, she says, Answer. Hi, Kitchen. Kitchen's humorous voice says, How's it going out there? She says, thanks for calling back. I'm making progress. He says, so what's up? She says, I want to get a video to someone, but I don't want them just to watch it in AR. I want to make sure they watch it all the way through. He says, is it the video I decrypted for you from when you were 12? She says, yes. Five tuckers sit in a burger joint turned vending bar four play cards. The fifth sits at the next table, air swiping, immersed in VR. The place is only big enough for four tables and a counter. Cabinets cover the wall behind the counter. The cabinets contain the robotics that serve the drinks. Whenever someone asks their assistant for a drink, their accounts are charged, and robot arms bring them their order. The building needs lots of repairs. The linoleum floor is so broken up that more of the concrete subfloor shows than the linoleum. Mismatch furniture wobbles. Someone wedged both the front and back door open, and a wind blows through sometimes blowing a card off the table. Boards cover the windows, and the only light comes from hard sunlight bouncing off the pavement just outside the doorways. Video paper covering the walls plays hot femme clips and beer ads, 
the jukebox is broken. Before that, heavy metal used to play. Crack slumps in the mold-formed chair looking at his cards and yawning. He'd like to play dominoes or chess sometimes instead of always cards. Hell, he'd be happy to work on a puzzle, but dominoes are for N-word, chess is for fags, and puzzles are for old hags. The only reason he's any good at cards is card games bore him so much. No one can tell if he has a good hand or not. He says, another triple. A robot arm brings him double shots of whiskey and a pint of beer. In his 40s, his alcohol puffy cheeks hang on the sides of his face. His glasses are always mirrored, hiding his eyes. Due to his habit of passing out outside, his skin is a patchwork of rough and scaly spots. Enlarged blood vessels near the surface of his skin stand out like blue and red webs. He wears a wooden cross the length of a hand. It hangs on a greasy chain around his neck. He also wears so many white nationalist patches and insignia, even his cohorts tell him he doesn't need to have so many. An American flag bandana is tied around the top of his head. Sietso, a young guy with red-only tattoos, says, You see the video of the moon cannons shutting off? Marine says, Man, there is no moon. Schizo says, what? Marine says, there is no moon. There's no space. Does the Bible say there's space? Schizo says, I don't know. Crack says, there's heaven, earth, and hell. Marine says, the Bible doesn't lie. Crack says, the Bible even says what'll happen if you try to go to space. Have you ever heard of the Tower of Babel? Schizo says, sure, what's it matter? With some pleasure, Crack feels his pulse quicken. He says, "'Cause you can spot the lies. The moon cannon stopping is a hoax. Man can't control the weather. Only God can control the weather.'" A broad smile spreads on Schizo's face. He says, "'Whoa! And I was getting scared over nothing. Holy fuck!' Marine says, "'You were being an N-word.'" Schizo starts to stand and shouts, "'Man, shut the fuck up!' Crack makes a face as he tries to stifle a yawn. As night approaches, Crack sits at the counter. Three tuckers sit at a table bobbing heads and slurring words. All the screens on the walls flicker with static, creating a strobe effect. Crack slowly runs his tongue over his teeth, feeling each one. It feels magic and ridiculous and somehow belongs to the fact that his lips tingle. Some fucker is shouting at him. Hell, if he's going to turn around just because someone shouts his name. He's not a peon. Three of the tuckers shout, Crack, look, it's you. His gaze ascends and he sees a video playing on the wall screen. It looks nothing like the kind of feed that always plays on the wall screens. They never play anything but hot femmes posing in bikinis and beer ads. Now he sees an amateur video showing the inside of a cabin. It shows Tuckers sitting at a table snorting lines. One of the men is himself. He tries to comprehend. The pieces aren't coming together. He remembers that place. When was that? Schizo says, You look younger, Crack. Where is that? The video plays all over the walls, with many instances of the video all bleeding into each other. In the video, the men at the table turn and look at the camera. One points and his lips move. Carl knows that guy. It's Chev. He's living in Springfield on the other side of town. Carl's intoxication fades as his alertness increases. The video must have been shot at that prepper camp from a long time ago. The camera moves and a miserable little girl comes into the shot. She's covered in dirt, and her face is a mess of tear and snot trails. She looks into the camera. Schizo says, Dude, who is that? Haha, <laughs> whoa. 
Marine says, Stop, who's playing this? Crack, did you put the video up? The video shows Chev standing, knocking his chair back, and younger Crack also stands. They walk toward the camera. The little girl squirms. Her arms are bound behind her back. R.L. Crack's stomach turns, knowing what'll happen. Chev reaches behind her back and he must have cut her ties because her arms are freed, and she flails. Chev does what he can to bring her arms down. As the video continues showing every tedious, harrowing moment of that afternoon so many years ago, the Tuckers in the bar grow restless. The others look suspiciously at Crack. Schizo says, Man, why'd you post this? Crack stands and paces, looking away and returning his gaze to the video. He says, I had nothing to do with this. I didn't know there was a video. Marine says, Get the bar owner. Schizo says, We've never seen the owner. I've never seen a bartender, not any Hume. This is a vending bar. The owner probably lives in California. The video shows a close-up of the girl on the dirt. She's been shot in the leg and she looks pasty as a ghost. Crack doesn't remember. Not exactly. He was so wasted that day. He says, Fuck all to hell, I'm out of here. He stumbles out the door into the night. The others follow. Schizo says, I bet it was Chev. That's a sick joke. Man, that Chev is sick. Crack leans forward as he speeds up. The others follow him, exchanging guesses. They all sound completely confused. The night air feels warm and smells dusty. From the direction he walks toward, the rattle of one of the jeeps grows louder. It rattles like silverware in a blender. Marine says, Sounds like someone's taking a jeep out alone. We always drive in a group. The tucker in the back says, I bet it's pride. The jeep screams through the streets much faster than the tuckers usually drive them. They can hear it heading left, then it heads toward them on their left, a block over. Two lights appear down the street on their left. The brights are on. The car accelerates, climbing to top speed on the open stretch. Crack feels his feet stopping. Someone shouts, get out of the road. The intersection is several meters ahead. The jeep should speed past. Before the jeep tears past them, the brakes screech and it makes a sharp turn. The top of the jeep leans in the opposite direction and the wheels skid. For a split second, he sees a femme at the wheel. He totters in the middle of the street, twisting. His right leg lifts as he begins a run. Another tucker is close behind him. Three more run away, headed into a yard. Boom. She hits crack and the one behind him. She's thrown forward and the belt catches her. That'll leave a bruise across her chest. Her hands jump forward and she breaks a thumb on the stirring wheel. The jeep jumps as it rolls over the bodies. It slows. Marine stares at her from the sidewalk. That's not a tucker. That's a girl. When she looks over at him, her expression looks hideous. She turns away and the jeep speeds up. He drops to a knee and pulls his pistol from an ankle holster. He steadies the gun, aims, and fires four shots in quick succession. Pop, ping, pop, pop. The back right tire explodes as the jeep gains speed and takes a corner. The top-heavy jeep tips. The wheels on the left rise into the air. Come on, lifting, lifting. The jeep tips. It lands on its side and slides to a stop. Schizo runs to crack and the other lying in the road. At a glance, Marine can tell their chances are next to nil. They look mangled and bleeding all over the place. Crack's skull is crushed. Marine runs toward the jeep. The canvas roof rips and a small thing steps out. She moves with disorientation. He stops to aim. She jogs away from the jeep. He aims. Boom! The jeep explodes. He stumbles back. Plumes of smoke pour out of the cab. 
It's a smoke bomb that erases smell and DNA. He's watched videos about DNA erasers. He runs toward where he last saw her. When he runs past the Jeep, a gun fires and he hears a bullet whistle past his head. He backs up and gets low to the ground. Holy shit, she's screwed. She's so screwed. At this point, there's no point in avoiding street cams. They have so much footage of her that they could make a high-resolution 3D model of her. She just runs. She runs through yards and stays out of the street as much as possible, knowing that from moment to moment, many cams record her escape. This is so messed up. AI now know her. AI will spot the way she moves and the distances between her joints. For the rest of her life, she won't be able to go anywhere public. People get caught eventually if AI have them on their watch list. She heads through a junkyard and into the woods. Even when she's deep in the woods, far away from town lights, and her sensors don't alert her to followers, she doesn't feel good. She wants to scream. She feels caught. The world is now a treacherous place where she could be arrested at any moment. As she fiercely stomps through the vines, she says, Call Kitchen. After a few rings, Kitchen answers, What's up? She moans, They got me. They got me on street cams. With a panicked voice, he says, How much? She says, A lot. I had to run through the town right after running over my target. Can you send a sky crane? He tries to calm his voice as he says, Paper, oh paper, no matter how fast it'll take days. She sees her hideout and heads toward it. The rattle of terror jeeps come to life in the town. She's leaving a trail of her scent and DNA so bright it'll stand out like neon. She says, I could go to the airfield. The line is silent. She says, Kitchen, are you with me? He says, I found you. It's breaking news. You're breaking news. She could just stab herself. She moans like a cornered animal. Kitchen says helplessly, I'm trying to think what I can do. She says, There's an old mine out here. I can go in the mine. She stuffs her things into the survive all pod as quickly as possible. Pod, follow me, she shouts. Show me to the mine. Assistant says, head to the tag. She practically runs even though the thorn vines grow nearly to her hips. Suddenly she stops and says, pod, lower. The pod crushes vines as its legs fold under it. She steps on the front vent and climbs onto its roof. She says, go to the mine as fast as you can. She hangs on as the pod rises and pitches forward. They do go faster, but the pod isn't made to go fast. At least she won't leave behind as much smell and DNA. They travel even faster once they get out of the vines. Her phone rings and she sees a bubble that says, Kitchen. She says, Answer. Kitchen blurts out, Paper, look, I found a 3D map of the mine. Click to download it as soon as you see the pop-up. Look, good news, there's over a hundred kilometers of track in that mine. But listen, you'll probably lose net connection. She gasps. That's worse than losing eyesight. He says, I went to all the sites that have maps of that mine and corrupted the files. The mine map appears in her AR and she taps to download. He says, here's the problem. You'll lose your assistant and that means you won't be able to operate your pod or any of your equipment unless you install manual control. She grunts, oh no. He says, tell me what you have and I'll talk you through downloading and installing manual control for everything. She says, I have the survive all pod, this year's model, 
He says, okay, tell your assistant you want the offline manual control for your survival pod. By the next morning, Vic's news goes all in with the story. A femme from the north descends on an Extian nationalist town and perpetrates a hit-and-run that by the footage looks intentional. Tucker's set up camp outside the mine entrance. Though most mines have been 3D mapped by armatures, sites offering maps of this mine all have broken links or corrupted files. Tucker's and non-Tucker nationalists fly and drive into Springfield. Robot dogs follow her scent into the mine but reach an area filled with DNA erasing smoke. The thick smoke doesn't dissipate, and it extends down eight tunnels. A former police chief turns the town's cop bots back on. They march all 130 bots up to the mine and send them in to map and search. New data comes in by the hour. Thank you for listening. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is in 20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.